we're in Beirut for a new episode of the Beirut Banyan, and we're joined today by Todd Mitri, a former Minister of Environment, Information, Culture, as well as an acting foreign minister during the July 2006 war with Israel, and the most recent director of the Hassan Ferris Institute at AUB, and today is Todd Mitri's last day in that capacity. And this recording took place just days before the uprising unfolded. And what we discuss, in particular, about Tripoli is timely. Uh, Todd Dimitri takes us back to a Tripoli that he grew up in in the 1950s, uh, the politics of that era, what persuaded him personally, his appreciation for Arabic literature, for theology, for philosophy, and a colorful blend of Christian-Muslim dialogue, as well as genuine attempts at state reform. His career really defines the challenges of reforming the Lebanese Republic following the end of the Civil War and the power-sharing model that is currently being challenged on the streets of Beirut and throughout Lebanon. And as he's stepping down today as a director of the Hassan Ferris Institute, I thought it was appropriate to release the episode. And again, the conversation was recorded just before the uprising, but I think all that we discuss matters more today. Before we get to Todd Mitri's episode, if you're enjoying this podcast and the episodes released these past two weeks, please consider a contribution through Patreon. The link is in the details box below or visit the website BeirutBanyan.com. Simply click on the Patreon button, a completely independent endeavor, and I'm doing my best to capture every moment of this uprising day by day. Any donation, any pledge is appreciated. I'm Rani Shatah for episode 26 of the Beirut Banyan with Todd Mitri. Tripoli was a city where uh, you had a sense of history. It's, uh, it's an Arab Islamic uh, city. Uh, it has architectural uh, specificity. Uh, it's a bit conservative, socially conservative, but at the same time, uh, it's cosmopolit- it was cosmopolitan yeah. and very open to the world, partly because IPC yes, right. uh, was not far from, from the, the city. Iraqi Petroleum, the Iraqi uh, Petroleum Company. Yeah. There were lots of Greeks, Italians, yes. you name it. Uh, Brits and French and uh, and uh, who lived in the city and then mm. Lebanese and Palestinians from various regions of Lebanon and Palestine. But maybe this uh, is actually more relevant because uh, if anything, Tripoli, a big city for Lebanese standards, has changed much more than Beirut. Oh yeah, and was affected perhaps less by the civil war at the same time. So you're going back to a time where Tripoli was the if you will, the closest example of a melting pot or a diverse groupings of people. And you, you grew up in a, in which neighborhood in Tripoli? Indeed. I, I grew up in Shari Azmi, yeah. in what has become later Shari Thaqafi. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you're in the, heart of, in the heart of Tripoli. Yeah. 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 So, and, and the city was modern. Yeah. You know, uh, it's, it's kind of it's both conservative and modern. Mm-hmm. It's uh, 
and it's it's uh, it was a, a also a city that uh, welcomed Lebanese from other parts of the north, right? Uh, uh, and who mostly came from Christian backgrounds. So it was a mm. almost in terms of those who resided in the city, it was half Christian, half Muslim, right? Uh, which again gave it a special flavor. But you're saying conservative and modern at the same time, but as a as a Christian Lebanese growing up in a city that you call home, which is yours, uh, did you ever feel that that tension affected you as a child in Tripoli? Never actually. So there was no almost there was no anticipation that this would break down and fall no, apart. No, no, no. Okay. Whatsoever. Quite the contrary. Mm-hmm. You know, we we felt that. Uh, that the city sort of prefigured what what other parts of Lebanon uh, yeah. will develop into, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tripoli was worth celebrating. Oh, absolutely, in every in every sense. Now, uh, my my father grew up on the same street, Sherazmi. Yeah, it's a, a pleased to hear that Muhammad lived in Sherazmi. Uh, I'm older than him, so. And I went to French-speaking school mm-hmm, mm-hmm. while he had his uh, schooling in an American institution. Right. Yeah. So uh, our path did not cross at that time. Right. But uh, we made up for, for that <laughs> later. <laughs> yes, uh, exactly. So uh, now I, I was... You know, I lived in two worlds mm-hmm. and... Uh, and now, in retrospect, I think one could have, maybe I tried, to make the best of those two worlds. Mm. I was in a city which was Arab and Islamic, and as I was fully, fully immersed. I in, was in very Arabic yes. and, okay. and Urubi. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. uh, I, I demonstrated in support of the Algerian Revolution. I was pro-Palestinian mm. since I was 15 years old. And uh, and I loved Arabic, uh, and I spoke with a, I spoke with an accent that many people thought I was a Muslim Tripolitan, <laughs> while I was Christian. So this is this was one world in which I lived, and then the world of the school, which was very different. It was predominantly Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spoke French. Yeah. Uh, we. Uh, Actually, we were not allowed to speak Arabic. We were oh, at school. There was yeah. We were really. We were sanctioned if we spoke Arabic. Wow. It was like a little crime. We should not be code speaking Arabic. Students among themselves were they speaking? Yeah, we dialect? had to. It, no, we had to speak French to if each other. So students among yeah. and, and let's say social settings was it still French? No, in social no. settings, no Arabic or you mix the two. Right, but in school. French. The, uh, the lingua franca is French. Yeah. You, yeah. Have, you have to speak French. And and, and our, many of our teachers, I mean, all our teachers were Christian. Mm-hmm. Many were ex- Europeans. Yeah. Uh, the, the Christian brothers, the monks, right. Right. were French, Czech, uh, Italian, you name it, but they came from Europe. D- d- so it was another world. Right. Yeah. Did that have any... World. 
reason, was there any reaction to that which took you towards Arabic literature and appreciation for... Maybe, mm. maybe, yeah. Now, I have to say that we've always had in that school good Arabic teacher. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it has to do more with my father, who, uh, who at one point uh, realized that my French was better than my Arabic. Uh -huh. And he was a bit upset, you know. He said, La, you have to work on your Arabic. This is our language. This is where we come from. And wow. uh, so I think my father had a role in, uh, in orienting me towards... Uh, the Orient. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Reorienting. Affirming the, my Arab identity. Yeah. You know, we were... Uh, we, we used to study the history of France. Uh, we... Whether this was uh, the original intention of the missionaries that taught us in that school or not doesn't matter, mm -hmm. but uh, some of them were good intentioned. I, I have no doubt about this. Yeah. They were not there to, to convert us, nor yeah. to Roman Catholicism, nor they were there to, uh, to inculturate us in, in French tradition, but uh, that's probably not their intention, but the fact of the matter is that we studied the history of France, yeah. we of course spoke French, uh, we were made to believe that we, there is a society that we need to emulate, that we come from. But it's your father's generation who's, in a way, maybe better suited to see the change happen. Because I'm guessing he grew up at the height of the French mandate. And he went to the same school where I... Same school. ...have been. And it must have been his father, who only spoke Arabic, and no French offered. And then your generation is the shift, which maybe if we want to get a little... Uh, sort of unpack the word modern, maybe that's at the end of the day what we are talking about, which is there's a, a letting go of our past to a point and embracing could be American cinema and the movies in the theaters of Tripoli or the French language or even maybe uh, an, a disinterest in the Arabic language itself mm -hmm. and adapting to something new. But, yeah. but he saw you as, he, he was careful to make sure you yeah. appreciated both. He, he kept, yeah, he kept telling me, uh, these are our roots, this yeah. is our identity, an Arab, you know, yeah. he, he, he never missed reminding me of mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. So, did this, this, this strength in making sure you preserved your Arabic and your history. When you were a teenager in Tripoli, and maybe more aware, more observant of what was happening around Lebanon, did there, was there any internal problem there where you're like, yes, we are Arab, and yes, there's an Islamic story here, but there's a part of Lebanon that is maybe embracing something else and sees things differently? Did, did you ever have any issue with that personally? Yes, yes. 
there are so many things I disliked in mm. not just in my in, in the micro society of uh, of my school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Many of my peers were, uh, they were not fanatic Christians, but they were a bit apprehensive of yeah. Muslims. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and again, looked down at, at, uh, at Arabs and Muslims as, uh, you know, it was a time where the ideology of progress sort of uh, was predominant and that we not, we wanted to progress therefore we needed to emulate Western countries yeah so, uh, that, that was uh, that was uh, a point of disagreement and difference that uh, I cultivated actually with my uh, mm. my fellow Classmates. So you felt as an yeah. outsider of sorts? Yeah, but at the same time, I never felt as an outsider. So right. I, so you were really able. I to managed do, to yeah. live in two worlds. This is what yeah. what I uh, wanted to say in the beginning. Uh, I thought there is a best of two worlds one could bring together. Yeah. Of course, there there are tensions. You can't hold two identities together without tension. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's a struggle, but uh, we were too young to understand what we were doing. But, uh, but it's almost every story I hear of those years, especially your generation, is one of a, a, a city worth celebrating and a city worth returning to. Oh, and I mean, in a, in a softer way, a, a, a competition with Beirut because you could stay in Tripoli, have a great time in Tripoli, live a prosperous life, and sort of, and you didn't need to come to Beirut. Yeah, we came, to, I had to come to Beirut to, for university studies, there were no universities sure, in yeah. Tripoli. But uh, I mean for, for a as, a, as a, as a youth, as an adolescent. We were very happy, Tripoli, yeah. probably, and, and proud. proud. Remember, yeah. we were a bunch of, students from Tripoli, yeah. uh, we were living in the, uh, the dormitories. And, uh, mm -hmm. uh, oh, so even, even when you left, yeah. you still felt like yeah, yeah. ours is yeah. better, in and, a sense. Yeah. And, and I remember <laughs> we, one, of my, uh, one of my closest friends, mm -hmm. uh, we, we were roommates for years, and mm -hmm. close friends, uh, he used to speak with a heavy accent. Troublesome. Troublesome very, accent. very yeah, heavy. Yeah. <laughs> and mine was a little more uh, sort of tempered yeah, uh, accent. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I remember the Beirutis, whenever he, Hassan his name is, whenever Hassan spoke, mm -hmm. uh, the Beirutis smiled. And oh, then he yeah. used to tell me, oh yeah, they're smiling. Is it, they don't like my accent? <laughs> You're and, translating something. Yeah, and, and, and he used, oh. uh, so it took us some time, mm. those of us who came from Tripoli, to sort of integrate in, in Ras Beirut. Now, Ras Beirut was also a very welcoming... Uh, and that's actually a good point 
to transition because part of the city. Yeah. yeah, Ras Beirut, if anything, is similar to what you're describing in your youth in Tripoli, a, a natural mixing of communities where it's an equal among equals. There's no... Uh, you and, don't, and so was AUB, actually. And AUB. AUB was very cosmopolitan at that time. Yeah. We had lots of Arab students from various nationalities. Mm -hmm. There were Asians, remember, Afghanis, and Pakistanis, and Indians. There were lots of Americans. Uh, so it was... Uh, you had the whole world yeah. at AUB, you know. And... Uh, and where you came from, or what com religious community to be mm -hmm. you belong to, did not really matter. I mean, we we were divided on political yeah. uh, issues. So the divide was political. It was never. Uh, so this is late sixties, early. This 70s. is late sixties, early seventies. And there, um, the tension is real on campus. Oh yes, oh yes, because because of uh, mostly the uh, the rise of the Palestinian resistance. Mm -hmm. uh, there were those of us who were supportive of the Palestinian resistance yeah. movements, uh, and we were Lebanese and and people from other nationalities, we were also influenced by this wave of uh, student struggle for change mm -hmm. that was a world phenomenon, 1968, 69, right. 70. But I'm uh, curious about you, coming from Tripoli, entering AUB, and then finding yourself, in a way, making a decision where you stand politically. Uh, did, was there... Was, did you formulate these views at a younger age in Tripoli and sort of carry them with you? Or is this something that happened here? No, it, I, I, I was predisposed. Predisposed, okay. But yeah, in, in Tripoli, mm -hmm. I was already, uh, you know, I used to, uh, when I was a kid, I mean, yeah. 15, 16 years old, I remember I was in a demonstration in support of the Algerian National right. Liberation Movement. Uh, our, I used to walk in demonstrations where we praised Nasser. Okay. And, uh, so the Arab uh, nationalist uh, Palestinian. Yeah, and then when the, again, when the Palestinian mm -hmm. resistance movement, uh, the Fida'iyin, as we used to call them yeah. in the late 60s or mid 60s, uh, surfaced, yeah. we were, uh, we admired them and were yeah. very supportive. Uh, at that time, uh, even in, in school, though uh, the Christian brothers uh, sort of wanted us to, uh, wanted to isolate us as much as they could from the city. We, we were... Uh, hmm. The world, uh, the school was supposed to be our alternative world, mm -hmm. alternative mm -hmm. society. But you Even found yourself extracurricular yeah. and everything. Yeah. The school wanted to sort of shield us mm -hmm. from the influence yeah. of the move, political movements that were uh, popular in the city. And you found yourself. Drawn. And I found myself uh, rather than. Yeah. Uh, 
accept to to cut myself off mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. the city. Yeah. Uh, I I moved towards greater integration in the life of the city. Right. Yeah. So I was I was prepared to make those options that I made when I came to AUB. So you were in a sense a uh, a well aware teenager, politically speaking. You had you were not coming as an amateur with a fresh sort of slate. You had your enough opinions formulated at least to... Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah there were... Uh, you know, we were not very sophisticated at that time. <laughs> we were young yeah. people. Like sure, it, of course. We, we, we knew what we liked and what we right. disliked. But uh, I, the reason I, I ask, the reason I'm probing a bit on this is because that is the turning point in our history. That there was a youth... Year, youthful yearning on both sides of the spectrum, which would eventually cater. It would, it would, it would help drive the country apart later. Uh, but at the same time, you are growing up on Shera Azmi, middle of Tripoli, and on sectarian terms, unfortunately, it's, you're a Christian from Tripoli who supports the Palestinian cause, and you're a Christian in Ras Beirut, and no one would think twice about it. It's like, so what? He is a pro-Palestinian. The religious stuff takes a backseat. Um, and my uncle, my father's side, who we both uh, we were talking about before, is a Sunni Muslim from Shera Azmi, same street, a Kate'ib sympathizer, a phalangist supporter, and then finds himself on the other side of the spectrum in Ras Beirut the same years. And I think that's the magic that we lost to a degree. You could come to this part of Beirut and your, your, your religion, your sect, your confession was not the identifying factor. And that I think is, my generation has unfortunately, uh, we, we lost that. Where now the sect does unfortunately take a front row seat. And I, I always like reflecting on those years because that's the charm that uh, other things matter more than where you come from or what your last name is and, and that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, there are, there are all kinds of theories, I mean, when, uh, about this. Uh, and it's, uh, I mean, Christians contributed to the Arab Renaissance movement, to the independence movement, mm-hmm. and many historians of Arab nationalism when they, uh, uh, they refer to the contribution made by Christians mm-hmm. and other minorities, mm-hmm. uh, they, uh, they say that their role outweighed by far their numerical importance. I mean, they, there were many more Christians in the leadership of the Arab nationalist movement than there were Christian people in the country, yeah, right. uh, proportionally. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and, uh, and then if you go further in trying to analyze the reason why this is so, mm-hmm. you have those who thought that this is another form of an attempt to shake loose your minor- minority identity. Right. I mean, you're a minority, but you don't want to be a minority. Right. Therefore, you want to espouse yeah. a yeah. greater cause that uh, you, you want to emphasize what binds people together sure. across uh, religious differences. Yeah. Uh, you want to dilute yeah. uh, 
uh, your your original religious identity. True or not, mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is that there were many Christians. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was not. Uh, um, I was. I, I never felt alone. In in in. Yeah. Uh, we were quite a few uh, Christians who thought that this was our place. Yeah. Now, perhaps what what plays also uh, is. Uh, in favor of that, that's not a major determinant, but mm-hmm. was that Tripoli, no matter how uh, great is the city and it's the second uh, capital of yeah. Lebanon, as we used to say, right. <laughs> but uh, Tripoli is periphery. It's, uh, it's... Uh, B- back then. Uh, back okay. then, yeah. it's... Uh, mm. You know, Lebanon is Mount Lebanon, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, and the rest of us have been sort of joined Lebanon in 1920. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, before that, we were Ottomans. We right. were not part of Mount Lebanon. Right. So, uh, so there, there were first-class Lebanese, the mm-hmm. Beirutis, mm-hmm. and the Mount people from Mount Lebanon, and we were kind of second-class Lebanese. Uh, there was a bit of that. You felt that yourself as a as yeah we yeah. felt that that those who control Lebanon politically culturally yeah. and economically uh, uh, we're not part of those Interesting. even okay. if we're Christians uh, right well I'm not Maronite either so mm-hmm. then uh, yeah. again we within the Christian community being an Orthodox makes you sometimes feel like you're kind of in the eyes of those people, you're a second-class Christian. In the eyes uh, of the the, the, the ruling, the, the ruling yeah. class, which uh, would be yeah. more the Beirut merchant families, these and, the, and Mount Lebanon and, and the Maronite families of yeah, Mount all okay. families. And you felt it as a as a student that you're coming. I mean, it's not actual second-class citizen, obviously. No, but you felt I mean, it's disadvantaged. an overstated yeah. word. Uh, but you felt yeah. disadvantaged. Felt a little disadvantaged. Mm. Yeah, we, we, we felt that... Uh, there were the Beirutis and people from Mount Lebanon, Christians, mm-hmm. yeah. who have a greater sense of entitlement that we did not have. Right. We came from the periphery, yeah. the peripheral. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's still it's it's interesting because it's not sectarian. You're not looking at no. Beirutis and saying those Sunnis. No. You're saying the coast and the mountain. No. And we are being. We want in. We want to join the club. It's almost like a. Um, it's almost speaks more of economic disadvantage than yeah. uh, than anything. Yeah, you had you had. I mean. You had two options. Either you just think of AUB mm. as as a place where uh, that gives you the chance of mm. uh, an upward social mobility, mm-hmm. and that with it uh, you uh, you identify with the ruling elite of Lebanon. Right. You have that. That option, yeah, and many people from Tripoli, largely Christians but also Muslims, uh, felt that it was felt the path. that that was the path to follow. 
Yeah. And there were those of us who felt that no, this Lebanon needs to change, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, Lebanon's Arab identity has to be affirmed. Uh, the Palestinians are going to change the region. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if these are all the components necessary for a career in Christian Muslim understanding. Because I don't, I mean, I think you have to have both sides and be able to see them on the same footing to then make that into a, a, a career where you're able to fully yeah, absorb. Probably, yeah. probably. Now, uh, to, to add a complicating factor mm -hmm. uh, at the risk of surprising you, I was a practicing Christian. Okay. I used to go to church yeah. and uh, read the Bible and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, yeah. uh, and at that time, there was a movement uh, in worldwide, the Christian movement. Some thought that developed that was depicted as a theology of liberation. It started in Latin America, developed in, in Europe and even North America. And here, there were a number of young Christians who were like me, you know, committed Christians who went to church, read the Bible and what have you and uh, who uh, were sensitive to the ideals of social justice and therefore yeah. receptive to the ideas of the left, uh, right. wanted to be in solidarity with the poor, with the, yeah. with the downtrodden. So it's with really your politics were not just Middle Eastern, they were yeah. universal. Yeah, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we had the sense of solidarity with the oppressed, you know. Mm that uh, as Christians we needed, yeah. we needed to, to no, live. I mean, it's a very different time. So you have the Cold War and you have, I mean, you're re re referencing things, I'm guessing, reaching South America and you're, you're sort of tuned in. When you reach AUB, is it that the Palestinian cause just simply fits into that framework? Or was it really an individual choice on your part? that no, this is the right cause and this is something worth championing? It's both, actually. Both, okay. I mean, uh, yeah. all of us Arabs were sensitive to uh, the loss of Palestine in 1948, mm -hmm. the sense of injustice mm -hmm. inflicted on the Palestinian people. That's very clear. Yeah. And we were proud Arabs when we heard about the first military right. uh, guerrilla warfare uh, yeah. uh, against... against uh, Israelis, we were kind of proud that uh, mm. this is the beginning of an Arab uh, awakening. You know, yeah. we've been defeated for so many years by the Israelis, yes, yes. and now that these young people are. Uh, but as you're able, uh, you're a religious. Student. But then, but then, yeah. there's something universal in the Palestinian cause, right? Uh, right. That, that was equally attractive to uh -huh. someone like me. And at that time, it was the beginning of uh, a worldwide solidarity movement with the Palestinians. Right. So, uh, the Palestinian national movement had affinities with leftist groups in yeah. Japan, in Latin America, yes. Yes. In, in Western Europe. Yeah. Uh, and all of this... We saw at AUB, I mean, there were students from all these countries mm -hmm. and who uh, uh, had been to Palestinian camps yes. and, uh, uh, 
and were supportive of the Palestinian cause. It almost sounds seductive as a student being able to identify with the world or with segments throughout the world on an issue. But again, I know you're a teenager, you're turning in your early 20s. Did you ever sense that this here would spill into something horrible for Lebanon? Uh, we I, don't, were, I don't mean that we there's were, no burden on you here. No, 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 I know. But I think we were yeah. in... We, there was a measure of denial on our part. Uh-huh. Yeah. And now, in retrospect, mm. I, I think we should have listened more mm. to the Christians. <laughs> That's funny. I like that from you. <laughs> they were on the other side. Right, right. Whose <laughs> politics was largely influenced yeah. by fear. Yeah. They fear that the Palestinians will destabilize Lebanon. Yeah. They feel they fear that the Arabs will dominate Lebanon yeah. and Lebanon will lose its specificity, its unique character. Yeah. And uh, they feared that uh, at the level of AUB, the fact that there are so many Arab and international students mm. that uh, are politically militant, uh, they fear them. They uh, yeah. and 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 so there was something uh, um, reactive, I would even say defensive, yeah. on the part of the Lebanese League of Students that Hassan Shabah was a member of, <laughs> that brought together, uh, you know, Kataib and their allies, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and with whom we. Not only we fought politically, but physically there were many instances right. where the students... Was, yeah. Yeah. I wasn't personally involved in violence uh, in any of that, but, but that, sure. was, that was frequent. There's even you know. a book written about yeah. campus at war. I yeah. think it's Makram, yeah. Makram Rabah. Rabah yeah. Yeah. So, uh, um, but now in retrospect, I understand that these, these people were... Uh, so what we did not see or did not want to see, yeah. that Lebanon was at risk. And you're on campus when the war begins? Or he'd already graduated at that point? Uh, I, in 75, I had graduated. I had started my MA at uh, AUB. At AUB. Okay. Uh, but I used to take, you know, I used to go slowly at it. Used take a course every semester or so. Were you ever unable to come to Beirut when during those years because of Tripoli being... No, just it was, unfortunately, it was the opposite. I was in Beirut and it was difficult to get to, to Tripoli. To go back to Tripoli. Yeah. Yeah. My father started his master's as well yeah. and he got stuck in Tripoli. Mm. So that was the other way around. No, I was here, but... Uh, uh, but I wanted to go and see my parents, and mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. not very easy. There were times where uh, I had to wait two, three months before right. I'm able to go to Tripoli. Is there anything in those years that made you see yourself as becoming a, a in a way, a representative of the state or working to fix the state? No. No, uh, no I saw myself at that time... Uh, you know, I, I thought what now we call a civil war mm. in the early few years, say from 
75 to 82, roughly yeah. speaking. Yeah. In that period, we still thought that uh, that Lebanon was changing and then we might get rid of the political system as it mm. was, dominated mm. by The old model, the old parties and yeah. elite, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so uh, so there is there is hope so there for was a hope new Lebanon, right? Uh, and then we were, at least as, as far as I'm concerned, I was uh, more interested in that Lebanon in the making than in the existing state. And we, we felt that this is going to fall apart and yeah. then out of its ashes a new Something. reality. We, we had this illusion. I think the, we got this illusion in 1982 yeah. after yeah. the Israeli invasion. Right. Uh, we lost the Palestinians. They were not here anymore. And the Palestinians were the, uh, the military force that sure. made the, yeah. uh, the, the politics of change possible. Yeah. Uh, and then Bashir Jmail was elected and then uh, before he got killed. But at that time, we felt that that was the end of it. That was the end of our dream for yeah. a new Lebanon. And uh, your personal pursuits would then take you, in a sense, away from that. Towards and then I, I, I decided to sort yeah. of move away from politics after 82. And I'm, I'm, uh, you were still going back and forth even then. Yeah. Is it after the war that you ended up moving? So yeah, we left after the war. After the war, yeah. and you went to Switzerland. Yeah. In those years, that's where your academic and your Christian-Muslim understanding dialogue sort of takes shape, and you're, you're well-established there. When the Syrians entered in the 90s and they were here, did you sense that there was any room for hope in, in a, at a time where the war had ended things were obviously not moving in the right direction. Did, did you see any hope then that things would improve? Forget the economic rebirth, forget, you know, all the stuff, the money coming back, but the political situation, did you ever see that changing? No. None. No, I, I had very little hope. Actually. Yeah. Uh, I had very little hope. But I was interested in, by that time I had become, as you said, uh, fully immersed mm -hmm. in things, uh, Christian Muslim, mm -hmm. in dialogue, in mm -hmm. dealing with conflicts in places like uh, Bosnia, Sudan, right. uh, Ireland, uh, yeah. Chechnya, you name it. So I, I used to look at Lebanon from that angle. That is, yeah. this, is a, this is a country that is coming out of a war mm. that has divided Christians and Muslims. Now how do we, what is it? we need to do to remake uh, a Lebanon a place where Christians and Muslims not only can live in peace but can uh, uh, survive can together. develop yeah. a, a common identity and then right. uh, but there was no so that was my primary yeah. interest mm -hmm. yeah. I had no interest in Lebanese politics no interest no I mean very limited interest in Lebanese politics and uh, the heavy-handed Syrian presence make it even more difficult sure. for someone who lives in Geneva comes every other month to Lebanon yeah. to be active in politics. So I, I wasn't 
I was politically inactive. Inactive. I was only interested in sort of bringing Christians and Muslims into conversation yeah. Yeah. about their future together, mm. uh, about uh, the misuse of religion in, yeah. uh, in driving people apart. Uh, I mean, these were the issues. So politics is part of the conversation, but it's not the conversation. Yeah, yeah. it's a dimension of the it's conversation. It's a dimension, yeah. But then, of course, everything changes, because in February 2005, uh, Rafi Hadidi's assassination, shortly thereafter, you're a minister in the Lebanese government. It was, you know, by chance that yeah. this happened to me. Yeah. Actually, I was about to go to Harvard. <laughs> 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 I had an offer to teach for five years really? at Harvard because I had taught a year earlier. But it's fascinating, I think, because you come back quickly and suddenly you're a representative of the Lebanese government. And you're, I mean, this is now 15 years after the war ended. You are visible, you're on the stage. A year later, you're representing Lebanon on the world stage. And that, I think, is really by chance. I mean, it's by chance that you come back, but it's by chance that you're the acting foreign minister in a time where Lebanon is on the news in every corner that, of the that's world. That's a more complicated story. But it's, it, to me, I remember, yeah. of course, being here yeah. late at night, whenever there was electricity, international news, and you are there, Security Council, representing Lebanon and doing your best. And I think subjective view, you're under attack from every side possible, let alone the Israelis on, across the table, Dan Gillerman, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. So I really, I mean, I watched you, in a way, doing everything possible to make the case that this war will only bring permanent damage to Lebanon. There's not going to be a winner or a loser here. The state will lose what you're representing will lose. And I deeply admired that stretch because that's, well, you're a reluctant politician <laughs> and now you're the face of Lebanon. You know what happened is, uh, I can tell you, that, I mean, forget about details, but it's, it's, it's an interesting story because after uh, the, the, uh, the stint with yeah. Najib Mi'ati, yeah. uh, and we had elections and so on, and the, uh, the coalition, emerges, yeah. 14th of March, yes. won. Mm -hmm. Then Senora was asked to form the cabinet, and then Senora wanted to call me. We knew each other since mm -hmm. times immemorial, in, since 1970s, early 70s. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> Fuad called me and said, I want you to join me and you'll be my foreign minister. Because you have a good international experience, you've traveled the world, yeah. and uh, this kind. So that was, that was the initial intention, yeah, foreign that minister. that was the initial intention. Yeah. Uh, so, foreign minister. But then, and then he went to Lahoud. And Lahoud said, yes, well, Tariq, it's good, you know. Lahoud never did not know me. Yes. yes. Yeah. That's the good thing. Had he known me, he would, <laughs> he would have not uh, accepted. That's funny. So, uh, so you're really there by accident. I, I looked, yeah, yeah, like a decent guy, and uh, so yeah. and, and my community, because in Lebanon this is essential that my sure. community is fully supported. Yeah. 
Fuad Botros Hassan Twaini, the bishop. That's it. That's, uh, that's yeah. it. So you can't find a better orthodox. <laughs> uh, so everybody was happy. Yeah. But then Hezbollah said, no, we want, the, as they shared, you know, the yeah. major four ministerial positions, they wanted the foreign ministry for the Shiites. And that, uh, and the orthodox got the defense ministry. I, I was not candidate. You know, you get the four right. Sunni Shiite, orthodox and Maronite, they have yeah. the four more senior right. cabinet position. But you did not want that. I mean, you were so I, I said to Fuad, it didn't work, okay, I'm going back to Geneva. He said, no, 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 you stay, you'll be minister of something. Okay. So he got me appointed minister of culture. Uh, and what he did, that was smart on his behalf, uh, you know, after you form a cabinet, then every minister is appointed, there is a decree, yes. yeah. uh, uh, interim, ad interim minister uh, of another uh, portfolio. Yeah. So in case your colleague is away, you step in and, uh, so you and, and be the acting, foreign, the acting minister. And it's just by chance that the summer war, the July war, you were the acting foreign minister. Yeah, now there is a story to this, but I will... Uh, so, so Fuad appointed me mm. already yeah. uh, acting foreign minister. So yeah. when the foreign minister, because foreign minister travels a lot, yes. so when he's away, I, uh, uh, I replace him as uh, I, I uh, sort right. of proxy for him. Yeah. Uh, which has happened for a few months and so on. And then, uh, the, the 2016, uh, 2006. 2006 war broke mm -hmm. in July, and, uh, and I was, and we were, the three of us were the closest to Fuad Senora, uh, that yeah. time Muhammad, myself, and Nawaf Salam. Okay. And we worked, the three of us, I still have the drafts, you know, on the so-called Seven Points Plan. Oh, wow. And then we flew with yeah. Fuad to Rome. Yes, where yes. We had, There was a conference in yeah. Rome. And then as we were coming back on the plane, Fuad said, would you be prepared to go to New York? And I said, yes, but look, I'm Minister of Culture. Yeah. You can't send a Minister of Culture yeah. uh, to represent Lebanon in those negotiations. Right. He said, don't worry, I will, uh, I will find a way. And then, uh, and I said to him, well, fine, if you find a way, but I need a unanimous decision by the Council of Ministers, because right. uh, I, I want to, go, if, if I want to do good work in New York... You I want will, everyone on board. I want everyone yeah. on board. I don't yeah. want to, to, uh, to be perceived as a divisive sure. person. Sure. I, I want support. He said, don't worry, I will talk to Lahoud, to the president. He talked to Lahoud. The president said, yeah, fine, fine. Let him go. And then you needed the Council of Ministers to approve that. Uh, so what they did was, uh, was a bit trick in a way. We had an invitation to go to the Organization of Islamic Conference meeting in Kuala Lumpur. Hmm. So they said, this is a very important conference, and then the foreign minister needs to go to Kuala Lumpur. Yeah. So the foreign minister who loves to travel, yeah. 
said, okay, I go to Kuala Lumpur. The moment he was sent to Kuala Lumpur, I've become the foreign minister because I'm right. Uh, right. Uh, I am the interim. This is months before the summer war. So this is really this is, no. This is after the summer war. Sorry, this is after the summer the week war. Week after the war had uh, started. Oh, yeah. sorry, I misunderstood. So this no. is already you're filling the yeah. role during yeah. the war. Yeah, during the war. But I'm I just curious, were you that these meetings you attended and all that attention your way, was there any moment you thought that, what am I doing here? I am here really by chance and I never signed up for this and now I am taking on the, a big responsibility. No, I didn't say this. I said, no, this is, this is my duty. I have to do it yeah. the best way I can. No, but I think that is the, that's the definition of technocrat or whatever you want to call it. A, a politician who does the job. You're not, you're not fighting for your political survival. No, no, I was not interested in, yeah. in my own career. No, I mean, there was not. I was minister of culture. I was exactly happy with museums and arts and. So you are, in a way, the kind of politician Lebanon lacks throughout history. But Which you know what? It's a state representative doing their job. You know what? What helped you? Which is something I always say to my students mm. when. Mm when I teach, uh, you know, a course on diplomacy or something like mm -hmm. this, I, I always tell them the most important thing is to have uh, clarity on, on your objective, what are you trying to achieve, mm. and don't let yourself be derailed, distracted yeah. from this. Yeah. For me, the main objective was Lebanon was perceived worldwide as an aggressor because of Hezbollah crossed the blue line yeah. and did their, uh, yeah. uh, they kidnapped the Israeli soldiers. Mm. And, uh, and my job, I thought, was to convince the international community, for whatever that word means, mm. that, uh, that Lebanon is not an aggressor, but a victim. Yeah. Wanted to restore yeah. the, the image of, of Lebanon as a victim. Restore the sovereign image of and Lebanon. again the sovereign yeah. image of yeah. Lebanon and so on and right. all of that. Uh, I mean, all of these are implications. Sure, so, sure. So I focused on that, and uh, as I did the work I was supposed to do in New York. Yeah. The months thereafter, the, the special tribunal is formed, and then you have a lot of things changing in Lebanon. This, of course, you're, you're Minister of Interior under two different governments. So you, you may hold the record, I'm not sure about this, of the most, num the most portfolios of Lebanese government by one person. <laughs> Maybe, although I'm not sure, I'll double check on that. You have experienced many facets of the Lebanese state. And then you are here in Lebanon, you're serving as a minister, but you're seeing the gradual erosion of the state. Um, and that would later bring you back to academia, which is your career at Isam Fevis. But in those years, and I know this is a, a good decade of perspective, did you ever imagine that Lebanon would end up where it is today? Because now it's, it is quite pessimistic. And oh, now no. Things are really bad. But 10 years ago, following the July War, 2007, 2008, 
up until 2009, really, when things seemed to be like they were going to be stable for a time being. Did you ever imagine that all of this would take place? Let alone the Arab Spring, let alone the Syrian war, let alone all the regional turmoil, that we would be where we are right now. You know, that, that none of us predicted or was capable of foreseeing the the deterioration of our economy to mm. to what it has reached yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, this I I speak not just for myself but for everybody I worked with. Yeah. This is something we did not foresee. Yeah. Uh, and uh, although the premises of this uh, were there, yeah. but. But you know, again, we there were, during I, I was in government from 2005 till 2011. During those six years, economic growth was like eight percent, nine percent. So this has kind of mis, misled us. Yeah. We thought that Lebanon is doing fine. You know, yeah. Given of course, yeah, yeah. We have an external, we have an internal debt. Uh, sure. We have, uh, yeah. But economies. Well, at, at least it's good. We're, yeah. We're, yeah. There's, there's growth. Right. You know, remittances are growing. Yeah. Uh, the balance of, balance of payment was positive. Yes. Uh, I mean, at least you have two major economic indicators that were quite assuring. Yeah. You know, yeah. Balance of payment and, and growth. And it's important to 80%. know. 80%. This is during a very difficult yeah. chapter as well. It's not exactly. stability or... Exactly. Yeah. So we said, Alhamdulillah, we're, we're, we, didn't, we didn't foresee the collapse of our economy. Uh, How about the political collapse of the now, country? Politically, uh, I can't speak for myself, but also I think others, uh, yeah. we soon, by, I think September 2006, that's three months after... Yeah. October or November, yeah. when we, when uh, Hezbollah and his allies, uh, the permanent sit-in and the yeah started yeah. what I now call a bitocracy, the rule <laughs> by veto, and uh, and. Uh, when we also realized that uh, our political system has become, in many ways, dysfunctional. So you had that already in your oh, yeah. that was that yeah. was understood. Yeah, but we kept saying, you know, Taif agreement. We yeah. have to abide by the constitution. Yeah, we kept talking the same old talk. Right, uh, but uh, deep down. We knew that the political system is being changed, de facto, yeah. there's a de facto change. Yeah. We have a constitution, but no one really cares about what is in the constitution. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and the country is divided, and the chance of, uh, of healing that division are very limited. You held on for about five years after that, as a representative, as a minister. 
Um, and I know we're time pressed a bit. I just wanted to ask you if, you, if those are the years I think where your friendship, your professional relationship, and your friendship with my father sort of takes hold. I, there's a lot of the political story that I know. Of course, I, I watch it on TV like anyone. I want to maybe ask you if, if there is a candid moment or a private moment you had with him that maybe uh, elaborates on those years. Because I, I like what you just said. In, in September 2006, there was an internal, there's a digestion that things had changed and that this is really going to be just managing for the time being, but there was no optimism anymore. Uh, was there ever a moment with him where you both sort of saw that together or something you shared together that maybe people don't know necessarily or I don't know or something that you would be happy to share? Because I, I look for these private moments and I, I enjoy hearing them. Sure, sure. Censored, of course. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we had lots of conversations together and, uh, and uh, we, we made many trips to New York, to Cairo, mm. uh, uh, and, uh, and I always sensed, yeah. uh, notwithstanding uh, uh, Muhammad's, uh, how should I put it, I'm not going to use the words optimism and Pessimism, notwithstanding Muhammad's uh, determination. Mm. Mm. Uh, let me put it this way. Mm. Notwithstanding uh, his determination, I think we shared uh, our skepticism as to yeah. our ability, not just the two of us, but uh, sure, sure. But Fuad Senora. Our, our ability to uh, I'm going to use a big word I mean to save Lebanon, the Republic mm. yeah. I mean we saw that the Republic was falling falling apart yeah. that the political system is changing yeah. that, and, and Muhammad used to use uh, uh, a very good metaphor he said like Lebanon is like uh, uh, political life in Lebanon is like a football match where uh, the rules of the game change as as players <laughs> are played you know and then if you're a referee yeah. now what do you do uh, yeah. and in fact the rules of the Lebanese political game were changing yeah uh, by the day and this you is know. while both of you are in government yeah. so you're your your own careers have to like adjust accordingly, and it's it's not. Um... And I, I think when when Hamad was made minister, he hesitated a lot. We had a conversation, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and then I sensed that uh, yeah. he didn't believe much in the power of a government yeah. to, to get things changed. I know that, that for he was, yeah. he was yeah. I know that he did not want to be minister of finance. Yeah. And I know that he was relieved when that tenure was up. And I, I know that he thought his, his talents were not there, elsewhere. And he eventually would find himself 
in the, I think, in his prime, doing his best to advise. And but at the same time, what yeah. always, what I, uh, I mean, one of the memories I cherish mm. is we used to have Sunday meetings at Fuad Senora's, the three of us plus a couple of people, mm. but the three of us were regular. And then what I liked most in, in Muhammad, and I always had discussions with him about this, yeah. where, where do you get the energy from to, to do this? <laughs> While we both agreed that our political system is hopeless, yeah. that it's becoming dysfunctional right. for the reasons because there are no norms, the rules are changed, and, and, uh, and then there is this, you know, vetocracy where every yeah. strong political grouping can, uh, by the sheer right to veto, can paralyze the state. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, although he sh we shared this, this perception, Hamad was always willing to try new ideas. Every Sunday he came to the meeting with a new idea. Let's write a letter to Rouhani. Let's go, let's do this, let's do that. Yeah. You know, and, and I admit that I was more, far more skeptical. Yeah. That is a story that I really appreciate because I don't know enough of these private moments with other people. And I, I like to uh, I like to hear them as much as I can. It's a it's a, it's a good story for me to, to remember. Your Christian Muslim understanding, your work towards that kind of dialogue and respect, which I think is central to your career. In two thousand and nineteen, numbers wise at least, we see a segment of Lebanon gradually disappearing, and we don't. I mean, we almost see a defensive reaction today that is the sign of a real minority complex on the defensive. Do you think at its core it's really just a matter of dialogue and discussion and respect and negotiation, or do you think it's really, at the end of the day, it's the politics that will drive one community either to near extinction or to the brink of another round of self-preservation? And you said it earlier, fear potential violence down the road. Is, it, is negotiation and dialogue enough to make sure that Lebanon's Christians feel that they are still part of Lebanon? And this is my generation. It's not, it's my kids' generation. They're seeing a very, very, very different country. Not the mosaic that you grew up with, and not the mosaic I grew up with either. I know it's a difficult question. Yeah, I know, I know it's very difficult. I, I try not to be discouraged. Mm. But are, what's happening now is very discouraging. The worst of it is that those who are in power are so short-sighted. Uh, they have poisoned relations between Christians and other, other Lebanese. Mm. In the name of defending... Uh, Christian rights or retrieving Christian rights, whatever word yeah. they use, yeah. they have weakened Lebanon. Uh, and then ultimately this, this will be detrimental to the Christians. Yeah. 
I'm, uh, I hold them responsible for, largely responsible for what is happening now to the country. Uh, mm, you know, we have, in March 14th, uh, we have overcome, at least symbolically, and we had to build on this, the communal divide in Lebanon, you know, Christians and Muslims. Sure. Met and there was a sense of in identity. A way, it's your Sheraz yeah. and it's your yeah. Ras Beirut yeah. that would reemerge. That, that reemerged, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And we were very hopeful that uh, the, a new identity that holds uh, people closer to each other and a new sense of uh, being Lebanese mm. uh, is, uh, is in the making. Yeah. And, uh, and the political elites, they missed this opportunity. Yeah. Uh, and they're all responsible for missing the opportunity of remaking the unity of the Lebanese people yeah. and rebuilding the state. Yes. Uh, and when I speak of rebuilding the state, I speak of citizenship, of equal citizenship as well. Yeah. Uh, we missed that opportunity. Responsibility is shared. But those people are are even more responsible than everyone else yeah. because of uh, not only they did not build on what could have been achieved, but there is a, a setback. Yeah. Uh, they have, I mean, they have provoked the Sunnis, they have provoked the Shia, they have provoked the Druze. Uh, they are playing the zero-sum game. Yeah, they think that what they can gain is nothing but a loss for others. Yeah. Uh, rather than say, like, if 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 we build on what 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 unites the Lebanese, and if we reform the political system, as if we try to solve our economic problems, perhaps we can we can remake the unity of the country. They uh, the country is less united than it was ever been. It's ever been, and they're largely responsible for this. I, 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 I pity that. I. Uh, uh, it's not just. It's more than a blame game I'm playing. It's uh, yes. That's not what I have in mind. It's not the blame game. It's fear that this resurgence of uh, a fanatic Christian. Lebanism, yeah. an exclusive, uh, yeah. uh, Lebanese identity, uh, flavored also with with anti-Syrian, anti-Palestinian racism. Yeah, uh, uh, it, it's it's incredible. It, it it will do a lot of harm for the country, but for the Christians as well. It will. Uh, it will uh, exacerbate the, the decline. The decline. Let's end it with a, with a slightly positive note. Sure. Slightly. Let's end it with a, you said off, uh, off mic, a, um, a, a great Kamel Salibi anecdote. And I know this is during the Israeli invasion, this is during the 1980s, bleak time for Lebanon. You're walking with him in Ras Beirut talking about how Ras Beirut is changing. 
And what did he tell you in return? What were his words? Ras Beirut will civilize them. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can bet on at least this part of Lebanon, this part of Beirut, holding on to what your generation loved about AUB and its campus, its neighborhood, what my generation still holds dearly, the equal among equals, this sense of everyone belongs to this part of Lebanon. And this can accommodate all Lebanese from all types. So hopefully AUB at least and Ras Beirut, figuratively and in what you hold dearly as well, your childhood, your later career, your whole Christian Muslim understanding and, and all of that, hopefully this corner of the Middle East retains it for the time being. Thank you, Tadimitri. Thank you, Ronnie. I really appreciate this. appreciation for the religious differences of this country, for genuine attempts at understanding and dialogue, for the political historic context that gave Lebanon its power sharing mechanism, ways to fix it, ways to improve it. The subtext of what is being discussed right now on the streets of Beirut. And today is day 15 of the uprising. And even though the protests have diminished, there is political change on the horizon. And we saw it last night. I mean, 24 hours after the prime minister's announced resignation, you still have people going to the streets, blocking roads, demanding other people resign, demanding the state in itself, the state that we know, change. So this will not end anytime soon. Hopefully that emotional upswell will yield to change this time around. If you want to stay updated, simply subscribe to this podcast through your preferred podcast platform. Or go to our YouTube channel, The Beirut Banyan. You'll find us there. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is The Beirut Banyan. (laughs) 